Um, it's been a long time since I stood up here. Actually, I was thinking about it earlier. Is I don't think I've ever spoken in chapel. So after I worked at Sterling College for, I think, five years and was a student here, this is my first time speaking. So, um, As Dennis said, I spent a lot of time doing a lot of different things. I spent about over 20 years doing full-time ministry all over the world. Um, and as Dennis said, including Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain, Europe, Southeast Asia. Um, but what I want to talk about tonight is, is something that hopefully will speak to some of you, because I'm sure a lot of you are similar to how I was and when I was a student here. Um, actually, probably since I was in high school, if anybody asked me who my best friend was, I said, Jesus. And I really meant that. Um, I don't think I fully understood what it meant to say that, but I meant it as best I knew how to mean it. And uh, so that's why I came to Sterling College. That's why I spent years doing full-time ministry, over 20 years all over the world. And uh, I remember I was in Australia doing high school ministry, and uh, probably as clearly as I've ever heard God speak, and the only time I can say I know exactly what he said in the exact words. You know, sometimes I get this feeling that maybe God's trying to tell me something. But this time he said some really specific words to me. He said, Bob, stop doing ministry and just spend time with me. And I said, I don't know how to do that. You know, I, I like I said, spent years doing full-time ministry all over the world, led thousands of young people to the Lord, I didn't know how to just spend time with him. I realized that my life had been kind of about performance. As Dennis said, I was in everything. I was in band, I was in choir, I was in football, I played tennis in high school, I played all sports. Um, I'd spent my whole life performing. And I think somehow I got my identity from that. I heard somebody say one time, we call ourselves human beings, but we're really human doings. You know, we get our identity from what we do. In fact, you know, one of the first things we ask somebody, especially post-school, when you get out and start working the field, the first time you meet somebody, you'll say, hi, I'm Bob, what do you do? You know, that's kind of the first question you ask people, well, what do you do? And uh, there's a story in the, the New Testament that kind of illustrates the point, and it's a really short story. It's only like three or four verses. Um, Jesus came to a home, and in the home there were two sisters, one named Martha and one named Mary. And Martha was doing the preparations, getting ready to serve Jesus. So she was making the food, doing everything, and Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha started getting really annoyed that she was doing everything and Mary wasn't working. So Martha went to Jesus, and she said, don't you care that I'm doing all this work and Mary's not doing anything? Tell her to help me. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're distracted by so many things, but there's only one thing that is essential, and Mary has chosen that thing, and it won't be taken away from her. You know, I spent my life being Martha. I was really good at serving. It's great. You know, I, 
I, I think I'd been in probably 20 different countries around the world, and I spent really every part of my being serving the Lord. And I was good at it. I really was. Um, but Jesus said, stop doing ministry and spend time with me. And my first thought was, well, I'll go to Colorado and get a cabin in the mountains, and I'll hang out, and it'll be just me and Jesus, and it'll be great. And, but the more I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's, that's not what I need to do. And uh, I ended up really just trying to figure out what that meant to spend time with Jesus. I actually went to a small Bible college in Kansas City, um, spent a lot of time there. But the thing that the Lord really taught me during that time was how to wait. And again, that was something I wasn't very good at. I was really good at doing stuff. But just sitting and waiting was hard for me. I kind of felt like I was wasting my time. I remember I took this one class. It was called Meditation and Contemplative Prayer, and it sounds really fancy. But basically what it was was just learning how to be quiet and wait. And I remember the teacher saying, just spend five minutes, be quiet, wait, and see what the Lord says to you. I said, see if you can develop this discipline of doing that five minutes every day. Well, I sat down, and I waited and waited and waited. And at the end of five minutes, I said, well, that was a waste of time. And I said, if I was reading my Bible, I would have heard from the Lord. If I was praying, I would have, you know, at least he would have heard from me. Um, <laughs> Or if I was interceding, that would have been productive, but I just felt like I was wasting my time. But I continued and tried to develop that discipline of waiting and waiting. And I started reading Scripture, and you know, one of the things I learned from Scripture is one of the most common things in Scripture is wait. God says it all the time. He says, wait, 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 wait. But we're, we're terrible at it, especially us Midwestern Americans that have that work ethic. You know, I grew up on a farm and had a strong work ethic, and um, we're not good at waiting. But I learned how to wait. And in that process, I learned a lot of things. Um, things that were a little hard for me to learn. One is that it's not about me. You know, we like to think it's about ourselves. But it's not. You know, Scripture is very clear about that. Um, in fact, one, one Scripture verse that's had the biggest impact on me, of any verse in the Bible, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And, you know, I think I've spent a lot of time laboring in vain. I remember thinking about Jesus, and one time Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. That was really interesting to me that he said that, and I thought, well, what, what's the Father doing? I, I mean, I'd like to say I only do what I see the Father doing, but how do we know what he's doing? I mean, how do we know what the Lord is doing? I remember thinking about, there's this story in the Bible where there's a bunch of sick people sitting around this pool of water. And there was an angel that would come and stir up the pool and make it, I don't know exactly what stir up meant, but that's what the Bible says, stir up the pool. And whoever got in first got healed. And so everybody was around this pool waiting to get in because they wanted to get healed, all these sick people. Well, Jesus showed up at this pool one day, and he sees this lame man there. And he heals him. But he doesn't heal everybody. He heals that guy. And I was thinking, 
Why didn't he heal everybody? You know, if I had that power, if I was Jesus, I'd heal everybody. But he didn't. And that really challenged the way that I thought. Why did you not heal everybody? I don't know, but that's what the Father was doing. And I thought, you know, I need to learn how to do what the Father's doing. I remember another interesting thing Jesus said about prayer. His disciples said, teach us how to pray. And he said, don't be like the hypocrites who use a lot of words. They think that by their many words, the Lord will hear them. But he said, the Lord, the Father, already knows what you need even before you ask him. And then I thought about Jesus, and Scripture talks about him going out and praying all night long. I thought, well, what was he doing? Because he said, don't use a lot of words. But Scripture says he prayed all night long. You know, there's a time right before he was crucified, he was in the garden with, with some of his best friends, and he told them, wait here and watch with me, and I'm going to go over there and pray. And it says an hour later he came back, but it only shows, says two sentences that he prayed in that hour. I'm thinking, well, what was he doing? And I remembered he said, he only do, does what he sees the Father doing. I think what he was doing was listening. Again, which is something that I'm not very good at and most of us aren't very good at. You know, and it occurred to me, based upon those things, that the Lord is never going to learn anything that he doesn't already know by me opening my mouth and telling him. He knows everything. Yet most of us, Spend our prayers like this. Amen. And then we go on our way. And we don't even take two seconds to listen. And so when this guy said, spend five minutes, I'd think I wouldn't hear anything. But I remember hearing this story about Mother Teresa. Some of you probably know who she is. Some of you probably don't. She lived in Calcutta, India. And ministered to people there, the, the poorest of the poorest, the lame, the lepers, people who didn't have any way of serving. She served them. And this reporter heard that she had prayed this enormous amount every day. It was like five or six hours a day. It was crazy how much she would pray. And so the reporter said to her, so I hear you pray five hours a day. What do you say? She said, well, most of the time I don't say anything. I just listen. reporter thought for a while and he said well what does God say and Mother Teresa said well most of the time he doesn't say anything either <laughs> you know and it's kind of a funny story but the truth is I'll guarantee you if he said something she heard it because she took the time to listen which most of us don't do you know so God is never going to learn anything he doesn't know by me opening my mouth but if I close my mouth and listen I may learn a lot of things that I don't know. So that was part of what I learned about what it means to be Mary or not be Martha, to just sit at her feet and be quiet and listen. So after God taught me that lesson, he sent me to Nepal. And Nepal is sandwiched between India and China. It's a little country, about 60% the size of Kansas. Um, I like to say it's the thickest country in the world <laughs> because the lowest point of elevation is about 29 feet and the highest is about 29,000 feet. That's the top of Mount Everest. And, uh, but when God sent me there, and as Dennis said, I met my wife there, and uh, 
we decided we were going to live our life based upon that verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor labor in vain. So we said, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to wait, and we're going to see what the Lord does. And uh, we didn't have a timetable. You know, it's different than most people who go thinking they're going to do missions is that, you know, you are always striving and working and trying to make something happen. We said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to make anything happen. We're just going to wait and see what happens. And it was probably two years. One day there was a chum, 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 chum. Six guys came up to our door, banged on our gate. And we said, can we help you? And they said, we want to follow your God. Now, I want you to know, we never did anything that even remotely looked like evangelism. We didn't talk about Jesus. We didn't say anything about Jesus. We just lived our lives. What I always like to say is, we love Jesus and we love people. That's it. And uh, anybody who knows me very well knows that there's not a religious bone in my body. (laughs) I'm not religious at all. I just love Jesus and I love people. In fact, I don't even like calling myself a Christian because there's so many stereotypes that go along with that. I just tell people I love Jesus. In fact, I am madly, deeply, passionately in love with Jesus. You know, I used to say he was my best friend. I didn't know what that meant. As weird as this sounds, he's my lover. He's my everything. I mean, I can't express to you what Jesus means to me. I, you know, that last song, it just spoke to me. There's power in the name of Jesus. You know, I like to watch the awards on TV and everybody gets up and says, I thank God, I thank God, I thank God, I thank God. I spent time in Nepal and in India and China and all over the place. Everybody thanks God. But how many people know Jesus? You know, there's one big difference between following Jesus and every religion in the world, and I'm going to lump Christianity in with religion. Because, unfortunately, it's be- Christianity has become a lot like other religions. In fact, every religion in the world pretty much is about what you do or what you don't do. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Following Jesus is the opposite of that. It has nothing to do with what I do. It has nothing to do with what you do. It's all about what he did and what he continues to do. If I could do it, I wouldn't need Jesus. And that's, that's the gospel in a nutshell right there. If I could do it, I wouldn't need Jesus. The whole point of the gospel is we can't do it. Anybody who says they can is a liar. That's just the way it is. I, I met someone once who told me, yeah, once I became a Christian, I never sinned again. And I thought, you're sinning right now because you're lying. <laughs> you know, there is no one who is perfect. You know, even Jesus himself said, no one is good except for God. So here we are in Nepal, loving Jesus, loving people. These guys come to our door, and they say, we want to follow your God. And I, and I basically say, well, if you just want to change religions, forget it. But if you want to know about the God who created you, who loves you, who made you to know him, then come on in. We'd love to introduce you to him. And so for the next 10, 11 years, we had a constant stream of people coming in our house. 
wanting to know Jesus. Never once did we go outside and do any evangelism. Never once did we do anything. We just waited, and God brought people to our door. Person after person after person after person. There's hundreds of stories I could tell you. I remember probably about five years previous to that, when I was doing full-time ministry in Australia, I started reading the book of Acts, and the more I read it, the more I got mad. I got madder and madder. Every time I'd read it, I'd get mad. And the reason I would get mad is I said to the Lord, why don't I see this anymore? All these things I read in the book of Acts, why don't I see it anymore? You're the same God. Why don't I see it? And finally, I got so angry and so frustrated, I said, God, either give me this, or take me to heaven, because I am done with my life as it is. Okay, fast forward again, five years in Nepal. I felt like I was living in the book of Acts every day. Miracles every day, to the magnitude that I, I can hardly express. But what I want you to know is it had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with my life. Because we didn't do anything. People from all over the world would come to see what God was doing there. And they'd say, like, what are you doing? What's your secret? And I would say, we don't do anything. And they would laugh. And I would say, I'm serious. We do not do anything. The Lord does it. In fact, here's how radical we are. People would come to our house and they'd say, we want to follow your God or your religion. We'd say again what we said. And then we'd start explaining to them, and they'd say, I believe everything you're telling me is the truth. What should I do? And this is the point where, you know, most missionaries would say, okay, pray this prayer after me, accept the Lord Jesus in your heart, blah, 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 as, as we do, kind of lead them through the plan of salvation. And we used to call it the bridge when I was in college, but there's lots of different terms for leading somebody to the Lord. But that's not what we would do. When they would say, what should we do? I would say, you go home, and you say, Jesus, if you are real, show yourself to me. And they would say, okay, I'll do that. And he did. 100% of the time, without exception, he revealed himself in ways that were unbelievable. That I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I, I, again, it shows how little faith I have that I say it was unbelievable. But that's how we are sometimes in America. We don't really expect the Lord to do anything in America. I want to tell you a story about one guy. This guy's name was Sunjay. For the back lack of a better way to describe it, Sunjay was a hired assassin. So his job was to kill, and that's, that was his job. And he was good at it, and he got paid well for it. So, and he would kill anybody. It didn't matter who it was for any price. Well, so let's say if your sister was married and her husband left her for another woman. In that culture, if your husband leaves you, you're nothing. You're not marryable anymore. You're, you have no value. You have no worth. So let's say this guy loses my sister for another woman. I might call Sanjay and say, hey, Sanjay, go kill that woman so that he will come back to my sister. And he would do it. 
But anyway, the Lord led him to our house one day. And he said, tell me about what you guys believe. So we told him. And he was very uncomfortable the whole time, but he stayed and he listened. At the end of it, he said, I know what you're telling me is true. What shall we do? So he said, as we always did, go ask Jesus. If you're real, show yourself to me. So he went home and he did that. Well, the next day, he got a phone call to go kill somebody. So he went along with three or four guys that always went with him. And uh, it was kind of gruesome. He would use this big kind of sword they have in Nepal. It's called the Kuparit. And it's big and sharp, and he would just one swipe and done. So he, s he had his arm raised, ready to kill this guy, and his arm froze, and he couldn't move it. So he's trying, and he can't move his arm. It's like somebody's holding his arm, and here's a voice that says, why are you shedding innocent blood? So he dropped the sword, and he ran home. And his friends were just staring at him. They couldn't believe because every time he'd done it, there's not a time in his life when he hadn't been able to do it. So the next morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, he and four of his friends are banging on our gate. They come in and they said, Jesus is so real. He showed himself to me. It wasn't easy for Sanjay to follow Jesus. It wasn't easy. And he had the police on his payroll. He just paid them off. Well, now they were after him for money. And he'd come, they'd come and they'd want their cut. And he's like, well, I'm not doing that anymore. And they wouldn't believe him. And they wanted their cut. And they'd put him in jail. And they'd do all these things to try to get money out of him. And it was hard for him. But he said, whenever it got hard for him, he and his friends would go to a bar. And they would have communion in the bar. And keep in mind who this guy was in our location. We lived in Kathmandu, which is the capital of Nepal, about um, probably six, seven million people in that area. Maybe, I don't know, like the less than the size of Wichita. So not a very big area, but a lot of people coming in. But everybody knew this guy. And he, norm he used to go in bars and get drunk and tear the places up. You know, or he, he and his friends would go in a bar and get drunk and they would give him money and say, please leave before he'd tear it up. So now he's going in the bar and it, it, it's quiet. Everybody's staring at him. And he'd ask the bartender for some of the local brew, whatever they had on tap, and a piece of bread. And he'd say, you guys don't understand, but let me tell you what we're doing here. And they would break bread and have communion in the bar. Pin drop silence. You know, that's the kind of things we saw every day. Miracle after miracle after miracle. You know, people's food never running out. A widow who had one cup of rice cooked it, and she and her two sons ate it for three or four days, more than they could eat. You know, just things like that every day, blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, a woman who'd been on the verge of death, bedridden for 15 years, just getting up out of bed and instantly. I mean, it was just a daily occurrence. And I don't say that 
to take any glory because we didn't do anything. And I really mean that. My wife and I did nothing except wait on the Lord. Uh, because I learned how to be Mary instead of Martha. And I can honestly say to you, I have nothing to offer. But in the hands of Jesus, there's nothing I can't do. I remember, I want to I tell you one story to end with. And this, this is a story about when I moved from Kansas to Colorado. And I'd spent most of my life in Sterling, but I moved to Breckenridge, Colorado. And I don't know how many of you have been to Breckenridge, but it's a ski town up in the mountains. And my house was at 10,400 feet. Um, we had snow on the ground for nine months of the year. And when I first moved there, one of the things I noticed in the wintertime was, was the lakes freezing over. And I remember one time I saw this guy out cross-country skiing across this big, huge reservoir. The reservoir was bigger than the town of Sterling, and he's like cross-country skiing across this on the ice. And I was thinking, that's really stupid. You wouldn't do that in Kansas. <laughs> you know, it gets really cold one day, and the next day it's really warm. You know, we just don't have ice freeze like that. Well, then one time I was going along, and I saw this guy who had driven his four-wheel drive out onto the lake, cut a hole, was ice fishing, and had this bonfire beside him on right beside his vehicle on the ice. And I'm thinking, okay, that's really stupid. <laughs> there is no way I would do that. Well, one time I, after I'd lived there for a couple of years, I got brave enough that I actually kind of walked out on the ice. But I didn't, like, go right out in the middle. I just kind of stayed close enough to the side so if it didn't break, I could, you know, jump back over. But I was, as I was thinking about that, I thought a lot about how that relates to my life as someone who follows Jesus. And I think this will relate to everybody in here, no matter if you follow Jesus or you don't. Hopefully you can understand what, I'm, what, what this story spoke to me in that. I was thinking about that ice and how that guy who drove his vehicle out there, cut the hole in ice fishing, he had a lot of faith in that ice. I had very little faith in that ice. But you know what? I was just as safe and secure as that guy. The only difference between he and I is that I didn't know it. And he did. That's why he could drive his vehicle out there. That's why he could cut the hole in the ice. That's why he could do all those things. Because he knew the ice a lot better than I did. He wasn't any more secure than I was. I was just as secure as him. I just didn't know it. And that's how it is in our relationships with Jesus. Whether you are a new believer and you have just a tiny bit of faith or whether you've spent, you know, 40 years of your life doing ministry around the world, it's not our faith that holds us up, it's Jesus that holds us up. And you might not even know Jesus. You might be questioning it all. You might be here just because you came on a scholarship or because your friends were coming or who knows why you're here at Sterling College. Not, I know very good and well, not all of you follow Jesus. But I'm sure you've heard things that have made you curious, made you wonder. 
And I just want to tell you that you are just as safe and secure as Jesus as I am. The only difference is you don't know him. My faith in Jesus is so high, there's no doubt in my mind that whatever he asks me to do, he will supply and it will get done. I never worry about money, ever. You know, if, if any of you saw my bank account right now, you would be really worried for me. <laughs> but I don't worry about it because I know that the Lord supplies everything that I need. Some of you may be struggling with money and you might be worrying a lot about it. But you are just as safe and secure in Jesus as I am. The only difference is you don't know it. So how come that guy had a lot more faith in the ice than I did? Simple reason, he knew the ice. Well, then you might ask, well, how did he get to know the ice? Well, he lived there for a long time. He probably started out like me, right on the edge, just testing the ice, and then gradually went out a little further and gradually went. And then one day he decided to drive his four-wheel drive out there. <laughs> and that's how it is in our relationship with the Lord, too. There's this one story that Jesus tells well, actually, it wasn't a story. It was Jesus was up on this mount. Of, I call it the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a lot of fancy words. But basically, he came down off of this mountain, and some of his disciples were down there, and there's this boy who was possessed by a demon. And, and the disciples said, Jesus, we, we tried casting him out. We couldn't do it. And Jesus said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be cast from the sea, and it'll be done. See, we think sometimes that faith is subjective. We tell people, well, you don't have enough faith. That's why that didn't happen. You didn't Because you didn't have enough faith. That's rubbish. Faith is not subjective. Faith is objective. Okay. And if you've studied grammar, you should know the difference. But objective means what makes faith real is where we place our faith. It's not how much faith we have. That's why it's not our faith that holds us up. It's the ice that holds us up. It's not our faith that holds us. It's Jesus who holds us. And whether you have this much faith or you have the, all the faith in the world, you are just as safe and secure. The only difference is you don't know it. Well, then you might ask the question, so is it important to have great faith then? If I just have a little bit of faith and I'm just as secure in Jesus, why should I worry about having great faith? Well, there are advantages to great faith, and one of them is you can sure enjoy life a lot more and you can sure do a lot more. That guy who was out there ice fishing, driving his four-wheel drive around, was having a lot more fun with that ice than I was. So my, you know, I had spent over 20 years as Martha, and I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know who I was in him. I don't regret that time, but I'll tell you what, man, I love life now. I love every single moment I have. And I wish for you that you don't wait until you're 35, 40, almost 40, like I did, before I learned how to be Mary. 
You know, I wish somebody had communicated to me when I was a college student at Sterling College that there was a difference. I think intellectually I probably knew it, but I didn't know it in my soul, in my spirit. I didn't know how to experience it. So my challenge for you, amidst your busy Sterling College schedule, spend five minutes. You might feel like you're wasting your time. But more than anything else, that changed my life, learning how to wait, learning how to just be quiet, learning how to rest. And whatever little bit of faith you have, use it. Even if it's just as big, that much faith placed in the right place can move mountains. You know, I wish I had days to tell you all the stories of the things that I've seen and that I've experienced. Things that I feel privileged to have witnessed with my own eyes that if I hadn't seen them, I probably wouldn't have believed a lot of it because I grew up where I never saw anything like that. But one thing I can tell you, Jesus is real. And he's there to be known, not just as the one in whose name we try to live, but he's the very life of us. You know, there's a big difference, and I'll end with this, a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. I know a lot about Barack Obama. I know a lot about Donald Trump, but I've never met either one of them. I don't know them. I have no relationship with them. That was my life with Jesus. I knew everything about him. I knew the Bible inside and out. I went to Sterling College, took a lot of Bible classes. I went to Bible college. I did all those things. I knew a lot about Jesus, but I did not know him. Because the only way to know him is to spend time with him. And when he said to me, stop doing ministry and just spend time with me, I thought, I don't know how to do that. But now I do. So that's my challenge for you. Just try to get to know him. That's all. It's not about religion. It's not about doing this and not doing that. It's not about rules. You know, an institution like this, Sterling College, there's rules, and there has to be in an institution like this, you know. But don't get the rules confused with who Jesus is. You know, one of my biggest pet peeves is most people in the world know, or in the United States, know John 3.16. Nobody knows John 3.17. Anybody here know what John 3.17 says? I didn't think so. Okay, here it is. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. Some of you may feel condemned. Some of you may feel like you have nothing to offer. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Yet, unfortunately, the most 
condemning institution the world has ever known has been the church, and that's driven a lot of people away. And to be honest, that's why I don't like to say I'm a Christian. <laughs> why I just say I love Jesus. And uh, so seek him out. If you don't know him, but you're curious, go home and ask him. Say, Jesus, if you are real, show yourself to me. He'll do it. He'll do it. He loves to reveal himself. Anyway, thanks for letting me come and share with you. Um, let's end with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that we can know you and be known by you. Lord, help us to learn how to wait and how to listen and to receive all that you have for us, Lord, because it is good. Thank you for your goodness to us.